0: I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. I think, for most of us, there aren't many moments where everything changes in a split second without any warning whatsoever. In fact, I can hardly think of anything like that in my own life. But for my friend Paul Bendix, that is exactly what happened back in 1968.
1: I was in my last year at Berkeley, uh, walking home from the library one night. Saw some guys. They asked me if I had any money, which was a common question. Everyone wanted spare change. Those days in Berkeley, I guess they still do. The first thing I knew, something had hit my chin, and it was a fist I kind of reconstructed. And then I realized someone was pointing a gun at me, and I tried to step into the light, and I heard a shot, and uh, everything in my body collapsed.
0: It was that fast. They shot him in the neck, and Paul crumpled to the ground. The three muggers left him for dead.
1: They rolled or kicked my body into some bushes and uh, ran away.
0: Paul started moaning, and someone heard him and called for help. And though he was laying there inert, he was fully conscious the whole time.
1: All these strange uh, impressions, you know, lying on the ground but unable to move so that your point of view couldn't change. I just remember everything still and just the light from the streetlight, then a sweep of a red light, you know, and ambulance got there.
0: It was after he woke up in the hospital that he got the news.
1: The neurosurgeon was there. He, uh, he explained, you know, you've been shot in the spinal cord and you are paralyzed from the neck down, but you may not stay as paralyzed as you are.
0: So there you have it, 21 years old and having to start over again with a badly damaged body. As the doctor suggested, Paul did in time regain some function, especially in his left arm and left leg, And he was able to walk for some years with difficulty with the help of a crutch. These days, he uses a motorized wheelchair. Now, some of this I already knew as Paul's friend, but there was a lot I didn't know until I read his new memoir called Dance Without Steps. Paul Bendix is a terrific writer, and he describes the events in his life and the challenges of disability with great insight and wit and precision. The book is a series of essays that Paul originally posted on his blog over the last 10 years. And that's about how long it had been since I last saw him until I found out about the book and paid him a visit where he lives in Menlo Park. I wanted to get reacquainted, to learn more about his life, and to talk about his writing. I started by asking about that assault in 1968. Do you think about it much? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's been over 40 years. Right, and... um.
1: You know, the expression, you know, I remember it as though yesterday and so on. It's literally true. There's some things that just don't change, you know.
0: Hmm. They never caught these guys. Never caught them, no. Three young... Three young guys. Right. Three young guys. You saw them. They asked for change. You didn't have a chance to do anything. No. They hit no. you and one of them shot you.
1: Right, right.
0: You were You were actually fully paralyzed from the neck down? Initially? I was fully
1: paralyzed from the neck oh, down. That's oh. right.
0: So you recovered a lot.
1: I did gradually, but I did.
0: That's right. And you describe yourself now as a quadriplegic. You know, I'm a partial quadriplegic. Actually,
1: there's a new word which is tetraplegic. Which I, it's I'm just too old a guy to kind of shift <laughs> gears and use this use this new term. But I suppose that's that's the that's the more contemporary word for it.
0: Well, I know some people who are quadriplegics use the short term, the kind of diminutive quad. Right. So are right. you a tet?
1: yeah yeah and this is the ted offensive i <laughs> it also reveals my 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 age <laughs> um yeah uh you know uh, the the disability itself has also taken all kinds of ups and downs i I walked for many
0: years, yeah, when I knew you first, you walked with a crutch, that's right.
1: And uh, there's a thing that happens to a partial high spinal cord injured people like me, which apparently is you just lose a lot of function in your 40s, as I did.
0: So, um, you know, you and I knew each other, and I knew your story a little bit, but I never really asked you in detail. I always felt that would be intrusive. Like, Paul, what exactly happened? Mm. I mean, I knew that you had been shot when you were a student at Berkeley. Would it have been intrusive for me to ask you and is there something about me interviewing you that finally allows me to ask that detail?
1: You know, all these questions uh, tell me is um how much I've evolved over the years. At that point I might have felt uh, almost ashamed of what had happened to me, you know, and intruded upon. It's um taken many years to overcome some of my self-consciousness. And uh, really also to to kind of understand that the antidote to shame is openness, you mm. know.
0: I knew, you know, like I say, I, I knew what had happened, but, well, I never thought of you as disabled. I know that's really kind of a weird thing to say. Hmm. I mean, I'd hold the door for you sometimes. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you didn't mind that. Did you mind that when i hold the door for you?
1: I was probably quite grateful, actually. <laughs> Doors are very heavy, and they're also... <laughs> To both of you, if you just have one hand and that one hand is on a crutch, opening your door right. really a door is really a pain.
0: Well, what I mean by that is, of course, I knew that you needed a crutch. I, I knew that you had been shot. I knew that you had been partially paralyzed. But your personality was such that all that sort of disappeared in the background. Hmm. But for you, it was um, something you were very self-conscious about. Well, in the
1: course of a lifetime, I have learned to put people at ease And although that's fine, it can sometimes be bad for me. You know, I need to remember when I am not at ease, and I can forget that, in my efforts to make people around me comfortable, whatever that is, whatever it takes. So
0: you're saying that the disabled guy is working double time to put other people at ease because you're under the impression that your disability puts them in an uncomfortable place?
1: Uh, it's a little more complicated than that, even. Uh, really, uh, I not only do I want to put them in a comfortable place for whatever reasons, when I kind of see them being uncomfortable, then I am more aware of my own disability. So um, I can avoid my own disability by avoiding the reflection of my disability in other people's demeanors.
0: There's undoubtedly a, a dance that goes on between... The abled and disabled, where like everybody knows, right? I mean, when it's a visible disability, right? Yet nobody says anything usually. And then people are making extra efforts to put each other at ease. Would it be better if people just came out and said, Why are you in a wheelchair? What happened to you? And, you know, brought it out in the open? Or is that bad too?
1: Wow. Uh, the thing about my injury is it's, it's so many things come up around it. Crime in the streets. It's lots of stuff that sometimes the shock on people's faces uh, disturbs me. I don't know what they're thinking. Are they alarmed? Is this going to uh, send us down in a sort of a side street? I don't want to go down. There are just lots of things can can come up around just the facts of a shooting, which have nothing to do with, uh, with a spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to avoid it sometimes, I mean, I would often lie and say I, I was in a car wreck if someone asked me. And you're right, there is a sort of a dance that goes on. Around it.
0: Around it, right. <laughs> right. I guess it's kind of unavoidable, it sounds like.
1: For years, I was a freelancer in Silicon Valley, so I would have these short-term, uh, writing projects, and that meant that I would, uh, most years hobble into the, uh, front office of one company after the next to present myself to some, uh, marketing person who had just hired me sight unseen and might not even know I was disabled, and, I mean, it was just a tense moment probably for both of us. Of course, I don't really know. Certainly, I know it was a tense moment for me. How were they going to react? So I was always prepared by being smiley, having some some, uh, small talk ready, and uh, I just did that time after time,
0: year after year. I'm guessing, Paul, knowing you, though, very observant guy, in your position, probably noticing all the little telltale signs that show that someone has, oh, he's disabled. Someone has noticed this. And oh, now I'm going to make my smile broader or I'm going to, you know, make an extra effort or I'm going to. Right. Yeah.
1: I'm, I, that's right. It's, I mean, all sorts of things. I mean, younger people tended to have just less, whatever it is, ability to absorb this, this news. Sometimes they could do it, but there were often younger marketing people that I, I worked with, especially as as I got older. And I could uh, often see that this wasn't a time to joke. First of all, joking was difficult anyway, just because of the generational thing. But just to make some small talk about uh, anything, really. you know, The company doing well, that's always a good one, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you write about uh, some of this unspoken um, ritual that goes on, at least in one context. In your book, it's a passage about you going to the Menlo Park Farmer's Market, right? I'd like to read from it with your permission. Sure. Would I like a pound of mushrooms? A man with a straw hat and scraggly beard displays a plastic bag full of the very shiitakes we discussed moments ago. "'That will cost you $2,' he says. "'We both know the mushrooms cost $4, "'which explains why I have extracted four $1 bills from my wallet "'and now have them sitting in my lap, "'right next to the glowing wheelchair battery indicator. "'Thank you,' I say sheepishly. "'I hit the joystick and roll off. "'I'm embarrassed. "'The man is doing something very nice, "'or thinks he is doing something very nice, "'and with the customers crowded around his stall, "'I don't want to point out the 50% discrepancy. "'He is giving me a break,' one that I have not sought and do not need. I'm certain this has to do with my being in a wheelchair. I am Menlo Park's tiny Tim. I buy my lettuce, mutter God bless us everyone, and make my neuromuscular way to the next stall. The lettuce lady has given me an unannounced and unexpected free pound of French carrots. I thank her profusely. I do not know what is French about them, and I would not even know they were carrots if she hadn't insisted that the elongated yellow, rather than orange, roots Were something very special. I am very special. That is what she is telling me with her free pound of vegetables. God bless us, everyone. Because everyone else in the market is old, or relatively old, I cannot attribute my special status to age. And frankly, I wonder if a younger person in a wheelchair would roll home with five free grapefruit along with his tangerines. I am old and crippled, aging and rolling, hell-bent and wheelchair-bound. So this these acts of charity uh, that people, you know, silently, you know, send your way because you're in a wheelchair. Yeah, what do you do with that? Just smile to please them and move on or or do you protest and say, "You know, I don't need this. I don't need your pity."
1: Actually, no, no. <laughs> first of all, I no, I don't do that. I I just thank them. I, that's what they want to do. I just I just thank them. That completes a very satisfactory exchange. They they've done something extra, and I thank them for doing it. And uh, I don't let them know that I expect this another time. But it's just it seems the most graceful way to just you know absorb the thing. It's you know charity is never a bad thing as far as I can see. You know?
0: I think there's there's something that comes across in your book because there there are a number of stories of you traveling and you know people graciously hoisting you up with the heavy wheelchair into a restaurant that you otherwise couldn't get into right? Right. in France. Right, Things like that happen. So there are times when you really need that. There are times when you don't need it. Right. You didn't need the extra discount on the mushrooms at the farmer's market.
1: It's interesting to see um, that particular uh, bit of behavior, though, in France. And in a way, in being disabled, one is in a privileged uh, condition because that was – Actually, that happened to be just around the time of the Iraq War, and you know the uh, coalition of the willing, and 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 the French having been insulted right and left. Um, when, of course, really down on the ground, person to person, they are uh, really quite generous. And right in Paris, I, I've I've found people to be extraordinarily uh, kind-hearted and generous to me in Paris, this big impersonal city. And I think that does have something to do with my disability.
0: But um, that passage I just read uh, of you at the Menlo Park Farmer's Market, it's carefully pitched between a certain gratitude and a certain uh, annoyance, right? I mean, that you are Tiny Tim, God bless us, everyone. You write elsewhere that you are your neighborhood's quadriplegic mascot. So... Tell me about that that predicament.
1: It sets me apart in ways that uh, I don't particularly like. But often that's just how things are for a while until people get a little more familiar with me. And, uh, you know, I've learned that although I don't like it, also not to make too big a deal about it and really, you know, not to protest, especially in a setting where I'm going to turn up again and again and again (laughs) because this farmer's market is a weekly event. And, and over time, I can count on people getting more comfortable with me and uh I just kind of learned not to uh you know make a big battle around each incident
0: hmm. and by the way, the book is arranged in the form of of essays which are dated, so that's the date they were written date they were written right. so they they were written over the course of seven or eight years, something like that right yeah. and then compiled into the book right um and you did write this one about that night in Berkeley in June um, right. when you were a student and when you were walking right home from the library and, um, you know, were mugged and shot. Um, I'm going to page it. page 54. Oh, you know, I think
1: 55 ish. actually. 55. Is okay?
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to read this one or do you want to go read for this it? One? Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of weird to read something so personal, uh, you know, and, and, and do justice to it as a reader. Um, but I'm going to try. You got any money? At this I smiled and shook my head. Everyone in Berkeley wanted spare change. Something collided with my chin. It took a moment to accept that it was a fist. Something salty filled my mouth, along with a loose piece of something sharp. The night, my brisk stroll, everything had stopped. The young men stood waiting. One of them grinned proudly. He was showing me something. It was shiny, silvery, like a cap pistol. Guns, real guns, like the ones I'd seen on television, were dark, dull metal. I was not going to be fooled and step toward the safety of the streetlight. With the bang, which was not terribly loud, my step ceased. Things descended with the gravitational precision of a stage curtain. My puppet body slipped downward, strings cut. The head bounced then settled in a field of black rocks, the view of an eye resting on pavement. And that was uh, from an essay from 2005. Um, What was the experience like of writing about that?
1: The experience of uh, writing about it and and reading a passage like that, even hearing it read, is remains painful. I must say it's a strange thing, it just hasn't gotten all that much easier. It's just a permanent fact of, of, of my life.
0: It was um someone who knows you uh and you know was aware that something had happened, but to read it again is like to say, No, 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 don't let it happen. Don't let it happen, you know. Please change the plot. Mm-hmm. Do you experience that too? Do you experience that Desire to change it, you know, to change history.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. To me, you mean to wish it never happened. To rewrite it. Sure. Or, oh, absolutely. To,
0: sure. But you've you've come up with a style throughout the book, um, and it's really uh, evident in that passage of just very lean, unsentimental, ungussied up prose, blunt, really blunt style.
1: Perception just moves moment by moment and I've just learned to how to do that. Just you know, what what it was like. Mm. This happened, that felt this way, this felt that way. And making sense of it is something I'm still working on. That's taken decades, but the experience of the moment was what it was.
0: By writing it really well, which you have, you've also made it pleasurable to a reader. Hmm. Is it is that something that you are
1: aware of, no, or? I must say I'm, I'm that I'm. I'm glad it's true, but I, it, you know, I'm. I can't. I can't have that perception somehow.
0: Yeah. yeah, You're a writer. You're a writer who cares about style. You care about aesthetics. Did you want to make it like good writing?
1: No. I'm glad about that. I'm glad that I got used to uh, writing these short pieces and kind of letting them go. I wanted to make it vivid. I wanted to recall it as intensely as I could. That's all.
0: Mm. There's an essay preceding your own shooting about an incident in a Spanish class you were taking. Right. You were in a play, an Andalusian, like, melodrama of some kind. (laughs) And you were playing the brutal husband who shoots his wife or the jealous husband who shoots his wife. And to amp up the realism during a rehearsal. You went out and got a a cap gun. Apparently there was no prop gun to be used at all, right? And you got one. And so you you pull out the fake gun, obviously fake gun, to use in the rehearsal, and it really upset the student who was playing your soon-to-be-deceased wife. Mm -hmm. But you include that in the book. I do. And And you describe yourself unflatteringly as being very insensitive to her... Right, right. And then not long afterwards you were shot. Right. What what connection are you making there?
1: I'm not sure. And and it's a very good question and it's it's something I'm working on myself and you know, you don't answer all these questions. I mean my my sense is that there's some continuity of story there. And it just was part of the story somehow. I can think about it and speculate a little bit. I was angry. I'd been hurt in an experience with a woman. I actually had been hurt in an experience with my mother, but that's a a bigger story. I certainly had a lot of um, undigested, sort of uh, um, unconscious anger and uh, the unwillingness to kind of uh, accept the emotional reality of what it was like being shot by just a prop gun by that woman. Uh, might have something to do with my overall mental state when I was shot, and I can't at this moment take it much beyond that. But I said, perhaps it's a story that's unfolding within me.
0: Mm. But for sure, Paul, you weren't—you weren't being punished when you were shot for having done no, no, this thing that was inconsiderate.
1: No, um, I don't know. Absolutely. I quite agree. And uh, besides, there's no the, – the, the things are way out of the
0: scale. Exactly. So it wasn't but, karma.
1: No, it wasn't karma, but um, the, the state of awareness does kind of haunt me a little bit. What, what level of awareness did I have at that moment?
0: Um, you don't have an essay in here about the days and months after the shooting, the recovery. Is that something you haven't gotten around to writing about? You don't want to write about what is? Why is that I, missing? I,
1: I I have written about it, and I don't quite know what I was doing there, except that I, for some reason I really wanted to jump to another stage of life. Yeah, I wanted people to know somehow how how my injury occurred, the era of my life in which it occurred. And then I was quickly moving on to what it's like to be not uh, recovering uh, from an injury, but to have, quote, recovered, and to be living in midlife with an injury. Why that is, I mean, for example, take the story of of Gabby Giffords. There is a sort of uh, almost ritualized tale that we tell around these things, With certainly there's the horrifying experience of being shot There is the struggle to recover. And um, then the story tends, at least in the popular mind, to kind of begin to peter out. How is she doing? What's the story now? Is she fully recovered? Is there a quasi-happy ending by now? And the story, I I would predict for her, for anyone who's had a traumatic injury, is going to span many decades. There's a lot more to come. Uh, you know, decades of of adjustment. It's only in the last few years that uh, in talking to various people, I've gotten a sense that uh, I have some post-traumatic stress, you know, type symptomology. Uh, What that looks like, I really don't know. I'm, of course, awfully close to it. But someone pointed out to me one time that I'm a bit like a, a combat veteran. I've been shot, but I don't have the support of, say, veterans around me. I'm kind of a... You know, it's a sort of lone experience.
0: Mm-hmm. The mass media loves a complete recovery and a happy ending, right? It loves a bouncing back from adversity story. Well, <laughs> Put, putting I would, it all behind you story.
1: Yeah, and and uh, maybe a focus on sort of short term heroics. Exactly. And uh, you know, actually, human life for almost all of us takes some heroism. I think you, you know. know? And uh, with a disability, there's just a particular flavor of, of this
0: bigger picture, let's say. Yeah. Do people say, though, oh, Paul, you're so brave? Yeah. And how does that feel when they say that?
1: I have to kind of watch it a little bit. I, I tend to be a little bit dismissive of such responses. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of learning to just say thank you. You know, There's probably a bit of truth to it. And yet I kind of like the idea that, you know, I'm united uh, in the, um, you know, family of, of brave people and uh, lots of things take bravery. I, I, I like the more kind of uniting aspects of the disabled experience rather than the ones that kind of set me aside or even elevate me.
0: One thing I noticed in your book, and by the way, your your book is not sugar coated in any way. And I don't know whether that's a conscious decision. I'm never going to sentimentalize. I'm never going to embroider. Another title could be No Illusions. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: right. I, I, I do hope that what, um, softens the blow is a bit of humor here and there. Okay. And, oh,
0: and that and, and also, uh, the consolations of truth itself. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's a comfort in a way when someone refuses to, water down, dress up, and otherwise avoid things we all know to be true. Like, you know, it's really clear in this book that being a tetraplegic is hard, right? Little things are a struggle. Right, that's true. Little stuff. You and I took a short walk outside your apartment. You were working really hard to walk a short distance. Right. With my help.
1: And what you don't know is that when I was rolling out to meet you, I dropped my cordless phone, and you know I managed to roll over it, and uh, you know then I had to back up and find it, and then I had to lean over and pick it up, and things like that are just maddening throughout my days. And uh, they haven't, I must tell you, gotten any better over many years.
0: Um, Paul, you um, you dictate now using voice recognition software. You are not typing anymore.
1: I, I'm really not, no.
0: Okay. So these pieces I'm reading from 2005 to the present were dictated? Yes, that's right. Did that have any in- impact on your style? Because, I, I mean, I my sense is that your style is very taut. It's very lean. Um, uh, your sentence construction is very straightforward, which lends a real immediacy and a real power to the writing. It's It's stripped down partly because you're dictating it, or is that just something you've arrived at? I wrote
1: until I lost some additional power in my right uh, wrist, which was in the mid-90s. And I used to, to type with a, with one hand and with a, a, a splint attached to the other, very much hunt and peck. But I, that's how I worked for years. And once I had this additional problem with my my right hand, I began trying voice recognition software. Which in its early years was very, very primitive and, you know, was very slow and prone to mistakes. But, you know, the incentive to get better and better at it was enormous. And the technology itself has gotten better and better. So I have to admit that if one has to be disabled for various reasons, technology one of them, this is the time to do it because technology makes my life much, much easier.
0: Do you edit your pieces much after you've dictated them?
1: I don't, actually. I really don't.
0: That's that's really interesting, because they have, like I say, a tightness where there's nothing extraneous, and they have a structure that's uh, you know, very well put together. I mean, they're very...
1: Uh, you know, with the blog experience of just getting things cranked out every uh-huh. day and letting them go and saying goodbye to them and not fussing over them, one just learns great lessons, which is that... Um, there's something in human beings that that wants to tell a story that wants to pull disparate parts together into something that's coherent that sees a beginning middle and end in things naturally and if you just give it a shot and give it a chance much of the time it will manifest you know it will come out of its hiding place and 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 tell its story and you just have to be patient and, you know, be grateful when it's there and uh, be forgiving when it isn't. And that's kind of what I learned by just by learning not to fuss over things quite so much.
0: And you're saying that as a guy who w- was a meticulous writer all those years, you're implying that you tried to force it too much in the past. Yeah, I think I did. I think I did. You I went I, you went back to Berkeley, didn't you, after you were shot?
1: I just for a, a final term. That's A it. final term. I'm right.
0: But didn't you get a degree in writing also?
1: Then I went to San Francisco State to uh-huh. the, the the famous writing program, which was a great experience for me.
0: So you're a trained writer, and yet what you're saying is you had to let go a lot of some of your ambitions and uh, your
1: my merciless self criticism, Robert. That's really what I had to kind of <laughs> kind of
0: yeah. and relinquish some control to the the process of simply yeah. Um, letting the words come out.
1: Right. <laughs> That's right. If a story wants to come out, it will take anything. It'll take a, you know, a a trip to Pete's coffee, you know, rolling through um Trader Joe's in search of food and and just the most mundane things will actually assemble themselves into a story. The, the experiences uh will begin to kind of make sense to me in a certain way because there's just some some background stuff going on that uh, that I see reflected in my my daily experience—that's that's beyond writing. To me, that that celebrates life in some, some some mysterious way.
0: Um. In another essay, and a lot of these are about traveling. You do a lot of traveling. A trip to New Orleans. Right. Uh, you went there to be part of a, a program for um, parolees from Angola State Prison, the famous right. prison in Louisiana. Yes. Felons, or ex-felons. Yes. yes. You went there as a guy representing the effects of violent crime. hmm Exhibit A. Yep. A guy in a wheelchair who yes. was shot. Crime paralyzed. victim, right. Crime victim. Um, you don't tell us in the essay what happened in those three days with these men. You hint well, that it was- I, I,
1: well, there, there are, are two important things there. One is that what I chose to, to write about was a very powerful experience that happened in a coffee shop not in these workshops with the prisoners. And, the, you know, stories come at us however they come, especially if you're in a sort of heightened mood as, as I was, you know, confronting men like the ones who had shot me.
0: The, th- the three young men who shot you right. were black. They were black. The inmates or the parolees you were dealing with were... Were
1: almost entirely black in, 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 uh, in Angola. And... Um, you know, honestly, within a very short amount of time, remarkably short amount of time, as I heard their stories, I f- truly felt I had more in common with them than, than than not in common with them. These people had been through horrible things. Uh, some of them had committed serious crimes, but most of them had committed a series of petty crimes and just gotten in, into this horrible system in, in 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 Louisiana. But that that really isn't the point. Just hearing about their lives, the things that they went through. It was just a very a very natural thing. I I, I kind of sympathized with their struggles and identified with them. Frightened as I was before I went there, of of, of being with them.
0: Did you tell them your story? Yeah. How did they react to that? you know that that was also
1: a kind of a a, a bonding thing this is the deep south i actually my only time i've ever been in the south was with this one trip and i had a very hard time understanding their southern accents but uh they said and i won't even try to uh to capture their accents but they they said in these heavily accented ways Wow, you are one righteous white dude <laughs> for coming here and being with us. And I, I took that as entirely sincere, and and uh, it just it touched my heart.
0: Tell us about the incident, though, that you made the actual focus of this essay.
1: Let me read a few passages from the book. I'll, I'll jump around just a little bit to kind of give you a quick sense of what this amounted to. I was staying in a motel in Gretna, Louisiana. This was the eve of the start of this three-day work- workshop with the prisoners. And uh, I was traveling with a push wheelchair, which I don't normally do, but I just couldn't get there and uh, you know deal with a heavy chair and so on. So I was making my way across the parking lot to the only restaurant I could see near the motel, which was a Denny's. The waitress who opened the door was black. All the waitresses were black, and all the patrons were white. The plastic menu contained nothing that wasn't fried. I ordered the fried fish, and I wondered why I had come to this distant place to spend a solitary evening in a motel coffee shop where everything was sad. Outside, making my way back, I felt a warm plop, then another. Hundreds of California garden hoses in the sky disgorging tepid contents onto the parking lot. "'I was only a few yards from the restaurant now. "'I pushed hard with my working leg "'and pulled with my functioning arm, "'but I was sodden within seconds. "'Water was rolling from my pant legs as from a rain gutter. "'I was a living rinse cycle. "'I was worrying about my shoes. "'In the drowning distance, someone fled the restaurant, "'bursting through the door, running through the deluge. "'The waitress materialized. "'She ran like someone not accustomed to the practice.' Someone who had missed out on most of physical education and most of girls' soccer. She let me in my room. I told her she had saved me. That's all right, she said. Can you get inside? No problem, I told her. You got your key? I stood up and tried to wedge my hand through the piece of wet fabric that had become my pocket. Yes, the key was still there. I knew she hadn't had a lot of coaching and had a lot of other things. People who have very little often give very much. It is these people who define humanity. They carry hope forward like Olympic runners with their torch. And because their flame is feeble and the distance far, they need encouragement. Not suspicious stares from a white guy who thinks he's maybe being robbed.
0: So race is part of this story, obviously. Right. I mean, you say most of the people waiting on white folks in this restaurant were black. Most of the uh, parolees from Angola State Prison that you met with were black, and the three kids who shot you, who were part of the mugging, were black. Um, And you say, a white guy who thought he might be being robbed. And you were a white guy who was robbed by some black kids, or they tried to rob you. but not by this waitress, that's for sure. No, I know, but I, I guess I want to ask, in the years after you were shot, was there how did you feel about race in America or about young people on the streets? I mean, were you, I, I were you wary?
1: I have even now this visceral reaction again about young black men. And it's very kind of instructive. I mean, obviously, these men are not out to shoot me because, I mean, they could be conceivably, but they're certainly not the like the young people who shot me who are now old like me, if they're even alive. It's... Uh, it's just kind of educational to see what a deep, visceral response one can have and how long it can last and uh, just to be aware of it, you know. It's it's part of uh, uh, fear in America and, and uh, uh, I'm sure, it, it I know it goes both ways. I'm sure black people are afraid of white people or suspicious or whatever. I mean, it's, you know, it's part of our national drama and I got caught up in it, you know?
0: You did go back to to UC Berkeley, though, after you were shot. Right. Was that hard?
1: I mean, emotionally? It was very hard. It was hard to run into students who didn't know what had happened to me and would just ask what had happened. Oh, they hadn't heard. You know, they might have heard, but not everyone knew me all that well. You know, it was a big, uh, impersonal school, and I mean, some were just classmates, people I didn't know very well, and I didn't probably didn't even realize I'd been shot and didn't put my name together with the news of us shooting off campus and so on.
0: Mm. Um, Paul, you have a couple essays in here about growing up when you were really young. Where were you living? In some seemingly desolate place in Southern California?
1: In Banning, California, which is about 20 miles west of Palm Springs.
0: But you, your family you, uh, your parents, and your brother and sister and sister, all lived outside of a right. small town right. in the desert. Yes. How did your family come to even be there? You guys are, from what I've read, German-Jewish, right? Yeah. How did they come to be in Banning, California?
1: During World War II, my father was a doctor, my mother was a nurse. They both worked on a hospital ship where they met. I guess they were married during the war on the ship, Discharged in Long Beach, California, foreign territory to both of them, but uh, someone on the ship heard about a job near at Palm Springs, and that's the
0: job my father took. He became the town doctor or? well, there were probably there were several
1: couple of town doctors, but he was he was one of them, and they found a very beautiful piece of property up against the desert mountains with you know magnificent views, absolutely no other human beings around. And uh, they quietly went about the emotional process of tearing each other apart in this very isolated setting for the next next decade or so.
0: Yeah, the, the essays uh, about that period of your life, again, like all your prose, very lean. But then with the aridity of this setting, the barrenness of the setting, they become even bleaker, you know. I'm thinking sort of a Sam Shepard play feel to them, you know. Mm. <laughs> There's this amazing scene— um, I call it a scene, as though you made it up, but you didn't make it up, did you? Where your father, I guess to clear a firebreak around your house, has a, a flamethrower, like the kind they use in wars. He's strapped to your back and shoots flame out of a nozzle or something.
1: I never made the war comparison but because I was just a kid. But yes, he had a, a backpack-type flamethrower.
0: And he's burning the grass around your house. Right. And did he really say, as he you know, set flame to... The brush around your house. Your mother is the vilest bitch in hell.
1: He had a way of saying things like that, right? And 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 for some reason, this was a, a pastime of his. You know, "quote unquote" burning the weeds to uh, keep uh, fires away from us. That was the, always the justification. He had no hobbies, my father. He just didn't. He didn't apparently grow up with hobbies. He didn't know how to do much of anything. But he taught himself a few things, and, and weed, weed clearing or weed burning was one of them. And it was his pastime. And for a kid, you know, you have no critical uh, sense of things. And,
0: you know, just this is what I thought people did. <laughs> what, while talking about their wife? Uh... Oh Yeah, yeah.
1: Talking about his life in general. Mm.
0: Bitterly, though? Yeah, yeah. Wow. What kind of doctor was he, anyway? He was uh, an internist.
1: Oh boy! Um, uh, and, and
0: then your your parents divorced, and and you and your um, siblings lived with him.
1: My oh. sister lived with my mother, my brother oh. and I live live with him.
0: But you you lived in an apartment above his doctor's office for a while. That's right, oh. we did we in did. in Banning. Yeah, wow. yeah. So I bet you couldn't wait to get the hell out of there when you reached a certain age. It
1: made me independent in some some way. You know, it it just did. I, I, there was no home to kind of cling to. And uh I mean there was no nest to stay in, so I, I forced a kind of a kind of independence.
0: Mm. You know. Um one thing I, I learned from your book is that you were just getting started really in this whole relationship thing <laughs> with women yeah. when you were shot. And so right. you had to s- learn your chops, learn, you know.
1: About sex and everything, right. Yeah.
0: You know, after yeah. your injury. Right. Um, and you did, because, I mean, you, I know you've been married a couple times. You had, yeah. You've met some pretty wonderful women, you know. And one of them, the one to whom this book is dedicated, was Marlu. Right. Is that how you pronounce her name? Yes, yes. Tell me about Marlu and how you met her, because she comes up in these essays. But I don't know anything about your history together.
1: Well, I met Marlou in the in the late 90s. I had I was divorced in the early 90s and just you know, at, at a stage of things in which I was feeling uh, more uh, together about myself and I just happened to meet her through some friends. And she had uh, wonderful qualities. Uh she had a, a very a very big heart and she opened my heart. I can't exactly say how that happened or or why it happened, but it must have been ready to happen because it it did. We had a good life together. We both enjoyed traveling. We did quite a bit of that. And uh, we went through all kinds of ups and downs, and we were sometimes hard to understand each other. We had different politics, for one thing. And yet, somehow our, our struggles just brought us closer. Uh, and at a time when things were really um, really very good, she was diagnosed with uh, advanced and very aggressive colon cancer, which is bad enough, but it was an aggressive form of, of a bad disease. And within uh, less than three years, she was dead. The experience of Loving someone and being close to someone who's dying has no precedent in my life. I, I kept thinking about it, or at least shortly after Marlow died, that this is so, such a strange thing because it's the one thing that everyone can count on, which is death and being around death, and yet had the feel of being completely unprecedented in, in human experiences. No, no one had gone through this. I remember the only thing I really read at the time that kind of made sense to me was a, a short book by C.S. Lewis about the death of his wife. I remember how much uh, he described it being like a constant state of anxiety, almost a feverish state. I, I was really just knocked totally off my bearings for a long, long time. And yet the time, the, the, the years during which Marlou was dying, uh, I, I, did, I did lots of writing. It was very important to me. It helped me stay sane, a matter of fact.
0: I'm reading about Marlou in your essays and the fact that she's been diagnosed with cancer and that it's terminal. And I'm thinking, it's so effing unfair, Paul. You already paid your dues. You shouldn't have to go through this. It's not
1: about being fair. That's for sure. That's one thing that's very clear about life. It's not. It's about something
0: else. Yeah, I know. Who, know, who knows what it is? No, I know my reaction was stupid, but
1: no, 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 no. I, that's that's.
0: Did you feel that way too, though? Like I already look. I already survived a near-death experience. I've suffered enough.
1: I, I, you know, that's a kind of a more. You have to be more outside the experience to have mm-hmm. that that judgment. People around me, I'm sure, had that <laughs> had that feeling in spades. But I, I was just aware that this was the next thing I I had to do, which was I had to be present during this woman's um, final years.
0: I think you describe yourself in the book at one point as trying to be a barely practicing Jew or something like that. I mean, I'm curious to know: is God in this picture at all? Like,
1: um, Jews are in this picture. Let's <laughs> let's say. After Marlou died, uh, some people from this uh, Reconstructionist congregation in Palo Alto that I belong to came over for a shiva. You know, which is uh, a morning, a morning, and, yeah. And I had never participated in one of these. It it at either end of the experience. And the rabbi just walked in the door and said, look, you know, we're going to be here this evening. We've brought some food. You can hang out in your office if you want to. You can come out if you want to. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Do what you want to do. This is your evening. And, uh, you know, it was one of the most permission-giving, liberating uh, moments I think I've I had around Marlou's death. It, it is a it is a ritual designed for introverts. I'm 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 convinced. You know, you need permission to be alone if you want to. I I, I was I was glad that I was a member of a, a small community at that point.
0: Reconstructionist, what's that mean?
1: Uh ketum congregation in Palo Alto is one of uh, several congregations like it. While hardly being an expert in the area, I would say that. It's participatory. There is only a part-time rabbi. Services are often led by uh, uh someone who isn't a, a, a rabbi. Uh, women certainly have uh, very equal status within the congregation. Uh, there is a general belief that uh you know Jews are among the 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 chosen people of the world, but not the only chosen people and
0: uh so is this more liberal even than reform Judaism? or is it uh, somewhere in oh, between
1: Oh I think one might say that and and yet um I think because there's there's so much do it yourself stuff around it and uh, there's so much so much volunteerism that every, everyone's actually quite paranoid about trying <laughs> to keep keep to t- ritual you know to to you know read torah accurately if you can do that and uh, you know uh, not throw tradition out the window completely hmm. But it is, a, it, I would say, that we're a very liberal, tikkun olam, you know, heal the world oriented uh, group
0: of people. Mm. Um, there is another passage I'd like you to read. This takes place um, during a cruise that you and Marlou took on the Queen Mary II, the huge ocean liner, across the Atlantic. You know, like Kate Winslet and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. Without the iceberg.
1: Well, you know, really, I mean, all all kidding aside, there was a feeling of an iceberg really with us because I was with a dying woman. And this this North Atlantic crossing was something we'd never done before. I'd never been on a ship before in in my life. But I go to England frequently. I've got lots of family there. And it seemed like something to do. I sort of vaguely always wanted to do it and uh once we were on board the ship, we really enjoyed it, and it was a a great discovery so there's a lot of uh, formal dining and stuff that goes on on board this ship and uh I thought I'd just read this passage from uh one one particular evening.
0: This is in the ballroom
1: right uh after dinner one night, there was a dress ball. And, uh, you know, of all the things that a a partial quadriplegic is not equipped for, this is one of probably one of the most uh, obvious. Nonetheless, you know, Marlou had on a beautiful dress and uh, she was a beautiful woman. And um, the poignancy of all this was just hammering me moment by moment that particular night. While the band played vintage material from Tommy Dorsey to Sting, Marlou and I found a table at the edge of the dance floor. I knew what I had to do. I knew this black and white evening meant a lot to Marlou, and in some different way it mattered to me, just that we were here, alive and together, and it had taken sixty years for me to get here, and something similar could be said of everyone else. Marlou didn't need a gentleman escort right now, for I could stand up from my wheelchair, hold her in my arms, and dance the dance of the paralyzed. The latter involves rocking back and forth, swaying with the music, and keeping the backs of my thighs in fairly constant contact with the edge of the wheelchair cushion, just for neuromuscular orientation. The ship was swaying, too, very slightly, and one needed to be careful, but not too careful, not too full of care about who was watching and whether or not I made a quadriplegic spectacle of myself, pathetic in my efforts grotesque in my failings. So that sort of care would have to go away. What I cared about right then was Marlou and me and Marlou, us the couple. And we deserved a dance. So I was up and swaying and part of the dance floor action and I had no capacity for the cha-cha and I had no regrets.
0: You know that's a tear-jerking passage, Paul
1: it is actually for me even at this point you know uh it is it is a, a very very poignant moment in my life and i'm glad that i mustered the courage to do this seemingly small thing a lot, you know the the world of someone in a in a in a wheelchair is, is small in a sense and uh small acts actually sometimes require lots of
0: effort as that one did mm-hmm. Paul, just want to thank you for, for the opportunity to get to know you better.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I got to know myself better in this experience, and I'm just delighted to see you with this program, Robert, and to make contact with you again after all these years. It's great. So let's keep in touch. For sure. Great. Thanks,
0: Paul. That was Paul Bendix. His new book of autobiographical essays is called Dance Without Steps. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back next week. We are always online at seventh avenue project.com.